And Lord God Almighty, we praise you. You are holy and you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. We did not deserve it at all. We did not deserve the freedom and forgiveness from our sins, but you loved us. And for your own glory and for your love for us, you sent your one and only son to die for us, to take our place, to take the punishment we deserve. Lord God, I pray now today as we hear this message from your timeless word, May our hearts be stirred unto the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, Lord, may our hearts be stirred once again to the message of the gospel that each and every person in this world needs to hear, and may our hearts be broken for them, and may we be motivated with the great passion to go and preach this good news. God, for those who are here today that have never given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, May this be the day that they make the decision. Not the decision of disbelief, unbelief, but may they make the decision to change. To change their life and to surrender their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Recently in an article by Forbes magazine, this one particular article, of course it was In this writer, it was his opinion, but he listed what he believed to be the five greatest business decisions in the history of the modern American economy. And at the top of that list, he had five things, but at the top of that list was Henry Ford's decision about a century ago to actually pay his workers double. And he made this decision so that he could recruit the best talent, whether it be at the design level, whether it be on the factory floor, Everywhere in the midst of his company, the Ford Motor Company, he made the decision to double wages so he could recruit the best and keep the best. And it turned out to be one of the greatest decisions that propelled the Ford Motor Company throughout this last century. Now when it comes to any major decision, whether it be a decision of business or any decision that we have in life, it obviously comes with a little bit of fear, a little bit of concern, because you don't know if it's a major decision that needs to be made. It usually is a decision that can come with great reward, but it comes also with great risk, great risk of failure. And I'm sure Henry Ford and maybe those of his consultants were thinking at some point, you know, if this doesn't go right, we're going to drastically increase our overhead and we're not going to have much payoff on the bottom line. But with any great decision that needs to be made, there is inherent risk. And so when we come to the empty tomb, when we come to the resurrected Jesus Christ, it is not something that we can respond to passively, and that really in fact isn't a response at all. It's something we can't respond to passively or with neutrality. The resurrected Jesus Christ just as we looked at last week with the cross, demands a decision on our part. So the question that we have before us today, we see it embedded within the title of this this message is, which will we choose? You know, I love to kind of illustrate this choice and the change that takes place in our life 
from no other place in the passage of Scripture than the very pages of Scripture. You know, we know Peter. Most of us know Peter. If you don't know the, uh, the Apostle Peter, that great character in Scripture, Peter was, he was kind of a loud mouth, right? He was one of those guys, he would kind of leap before he thought. He would just kind of shoot out and do something. And oftentimes he'd get himself in trouble and stick his foot in his mouth and all sorts of things like that. He was quite a character. And the night before Jesus' death, um, he's meeting with his disciples, his inner 12, the apostles, and he's having dinner with them. In fact, we now know it, it's memorialized as the Last Supper. And uh, Jesus looks to Peter and he says, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And in fact, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter, in typical fashion, says, absolutely not, there's no way... I know I've been walking with you for three years and you seem to know the future. You seem to know what's going to happen. You work miracles, but nope, you're wrong on this one. I'm not going to deny you three times. Well, fast forward a few hours. We see Jesus. He's in the midst of an unlawful trial. He's been arrested by the religious authorities. He's in the midst of this unlawful trial at the high priest's house. And Peter is just kind of, you know, slinking around. He's almost like a spy of some sort. He's just kind of hiding in the shadows following the procession of this whole illegal operation around and just trying to see what's happening and he gathers on a street corner if you can imagine around a fire and someone asks him aren't you with that Jesus aren't you one of his followers and Peter turns he says no not me no get the wrong guy someone else in the in the group says no I really think I've seen you with Jesus I've been at you know his gatherings I'm elaborating here but I've been at his gatherings before, you know, when he's out in the crowd and teaching. I think I have seen you there. You look really familiar. And Peter says, I don't know him. And finally, a girl, far from intimidating, says to him, no, I really think I've seen you with him. Peter, he curses and he says, I don't know the man. And then off in the distance, we hear the rooster crow. And he's broken. He's broken with his shame for denying Christ. But when we fast forward in the passage of Scripture, and we come to the book of Acts, chapter 2, 50 days later, just 50 days later, and we see this same Peter, after an incredible miracle has been worked by the Lord, in which we see there in Jerusalem, people from all over the world were, were there in Jerusalem, and they spoke the gospel message in the languages, the individual languages of all of these people, even though, of course, they didn't know these languages. Incredible miracle. And so the crowd's saying, what in the world is going on here? A crowd gathers, and Peter proceeds to preach one of the greatest, most powerful, moving sermons that we see in all of Christian history, and we see recorded in Scripture. Preached it with great courage. And in fact, when we look at uh, tradition outside the Bible, historical tradition, we see that, that Peter himself was martyred. And if tradition holds he was martyred, he was crucified upside down because he did not believe he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Fifty days. To what do we account that change, incredible change, in 50 days? No doubt as we see in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit, the one who is the helper, the one who is our challenger, the one that comes to dwell within us, to challenge us, to convict us of sin, but also to encourage us and empower us for the work of, of, of the good news of the gospel. The Holy Spirit came upon Peter. But we also see 
And we cannot deny that he had seen the risen Lord Jesus. And everything, everything, everything changed in his life. So when we look at Luke chapter 24 today, verses 1 through 12, as we'll look at this account of the resurrection, there's two things that come to mind. And really when we think about sort of the main idea of this passage and the main idea of this sermon, it's the fact that there are two ways, there are two ways that you can choose to respond to the, to the message of the empty tomb. There are two ways that you can respond to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And that's to respond with unbelief, or that is to respond with change. Let's read together. Verse 1, chapter 24 of Luke. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, those were some of the women that were close to Jesus and the apostles, they and certain other women... With them came to the tomb bringing spices which they'd prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened. They were greatly perplexed. They were confused about this. And behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Two angels stood by them in shining garments... Then, as the women were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, these two angels said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? You remember that great commercial of tricks, silly rabbit, tricks are for kids? It's almost as though the angels are saying, Silly, silly folks, tombs are for dead people. He is risen. He's not here. He said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Do you remember how he spoke to you and he was still in Galilee saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they did. They remembered his words. And then they returned from the tomb and they told all of these things. The, the word there speaks of this continual telling. They couldn't help but tell just everywhere they went they, they would tell. They told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest, all the rest of the followers of Jesus. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And the words of the women to the apostles seemed to be like idle tales. So the, the apostles are like, I don't know if we can believe this. And they did not believe these women. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So again, when we think about the story of the empty tomb, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it demands action. It demands reaction. How, in the, how are we going to respond to it? What we see kind of secondarily here in this very passage, we see there are several kind of responses by the women. First of all, they were confused. It says they were greatly perplexed. If you're here today, and uh, maybe this is the first time in quite some time in church, or maybe you've been here for a while, but you've never uh, come to that place in your life where you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't know what to think about 
the cross. You don't know what to think about. Okay, this, this man Jesus, whom we follow and we teach about, he rose from the dead, and you're confused about it. Guess what? That's okay. You're in good company. So were they. But here's the thing. As believers in Jesus Christ, we wouldn't want it any other way because when it comes to the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is unashamedly a miracle and it proves out that Jesus Christ was exactly who he says he was. He was more than just a good teacher. He was far more than that, but he was the resurrected Christ, the Son of God, come from earth. You know, it's okay. It's okay if there is doubt in your heart, and I would just pray today and I'd ask you that your heart may be open, not to my words, but to the words of God. It's okay with confusion. You see, but throughout the, the history of our world and throughout the, the history in the last 2,000 years after the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there have been many sources throughout the centuries that have tried to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no matter what the onslaught, no matter what the argument against, the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands tall against all challengers. Let me just give you a few today. Can it be historically proven? Well, absolutely, based upon uh, historical accuracy and what historians would call the historicity of something. How historically verifiable is this event? You know, when we look at issues of the ancient world and um, and, and issues of history, items in history, oftentimes historians will take accounts of these great, um, of these great stories in history as the absolute truth based upon far less evidence, historical evidence, than what we see for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take, for example, uh, history of Rome. When historians are looking to the history of Rome, they will try to find all of the original source documents they can or as close to it. So there might be historians like, Roman historians like Tacitus or Seleucidus and others like them. When you look at the number of original documents or as close to original documents, documents that are as close to the actual event in history as possible, those events in history pale in comparison to the number of documents that we have of Scripture that speak to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it absolutely stands the test, far and away stands the test of historical accuracy. But some will say, well, we can't trust it though because the Bible, you know, throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, it speaks of miracles. And we can prove that miracles aren't true. Logically, you cannot. You can actually prove that certain miracles aren't true. If someone claims to work a modern-day miracle, you can prove that that particular miracle is not true. But you cannot prove logically that all miracles cannot happen. There is the possibility that miracles can happen. But if we start from the place in our world that we are just time plus matter plus chance, and then that's how we arrived in, in the current world in which we live, and and that's how we arrive here as human beings, add in enough time, whatever amount of time you want, whether it's millions of years, if that's not good enough, billions of years. And then over time, it kind of shakes out to what we see, even though we might deny all the incredible complexity of design that we see in our world around us and in our own bodies. But you can't just disprove the Bible historically because it includes miracles. We say it unashamedly does. It's proving out the greatest message that one has ever heard. 
couple of the particular arguments that we see throughout history against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see there's many of them, but I'll take two, probably the two most popular today. And I'll give you a very basic description and refutation of those. First of all, is what has popularly been called the swoon theory. It's the idea that Jesus Christ, after he died upon the cross, that, uh, or really he did not in fact die on the cross, but that he was in, uh, his body was in shock. You can understand that. His body was in shock, and as they took him down from the cross, he appeared to be dead, and in the cool of the tomb, his body was revived. Well, there's many issues with that, but probably the greatest issue with that theory is the fact that the ones who were doing the crucifixion, they were anything but amateurs at crucifying. These were, in fact, experts in death. These Roman soldiers had crucified maybe hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people in their career. What a gruesome career to be an expert at, but nonetheless, they were experts. And these men knew when someone was dead. They knew when someone was dead. So, not only the swoon theory, but we also have the theory that uh, someone stole the body. There's two groups that could steal the body. One would be the religious authorities, but they had obviously no reason to do so because it would be uh, it would be proliferating what they thought was a lie and a heresy to begin with. So why would they steal the body? So that leaves the followers of Jesus Christ. But the followers of Jesus Christ, especially you think of the inner 12, taking the body down from the, from the cross, uh, it, it's, it's uh, taken to the tomb. Even if they were to, to, to steal this body from the tomb, they would have to overcome some major challenges. One of which is, again, experts, trained guards guarding the tomb, and these were common fishermen and the like. And, and all of a sudden, they turn into Navy SEALs overnight to, to kind of capture this body and take this body away. Even if that were to happen, you have to think about the rest of their lives. These men, these followers of Jesus Christ, were martyred for their faith. Even if they were trying to, to proliferate a lie for some sort of gain that they could, could have unto themselves, maybe it'd be fame, whatever it may be, maybe they thought it was hopes of riches of being leadership in this new way, this new false way, that absolutely would go out the door, out the window as soon as they face death and as soon as they, in many cases, face torture. That too does not hold water. And these are just two examples, two of the most popular examples of many challenges to the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of them having effect, none of them being able to take down what we know to be this historical account, true account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we think again, it's okay to be confused. It's okay to be, uh, think, wow, this is incredible. This is incredible. We want it, want it, want it to be any other way so we see that they could have reacted with confusion as these ladies did but they also reacted with passion verse 9 then they returned to the tomb and told these things to the 11 and all the rest they again as i mentioned it's this idea that they're just kind of telling they're just everywhere they go they can't help but just guess what i saw jesus is risen guess what i saw jesus is risen he is not dead he is risen again i saw two angels they told me i, I the body's not there he's gone he's risen he, he is, and he has done exactly what he says. And he told us he was going to do. They reacted with passion. For us as believers in Jesus Christ, those of us, maybe even years ago, you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Easter is a chance for us to remember again where our passions should lie in life. Where our passions should lie. You see, we proclaim what we're passionate about. We proclaim what we're passionate about. Now, I think we're made as, uh, as people, we're made in the image of God and we're made to be passionate. We can be passionate for uh, certain hobbies that we love. We can be passionate for the sports teams that we follow. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we should be above all things, far and away, passionate for the Lord Jesus Christ. Passionate for the gospel. You know, you'll hear me use that term, and maybe if you're here again, you haven't given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have joined us for a number of weeks now, and you've heard me talk about the gospel. And when I talk about the gospel, I always like to try to explain the gospel, and I think we must do that today before we get to our two main, main points of how we can respond to the cross. We should be, as believers, passionate about the gospel that saved us from the very beginning. But for those of you out there who have not responded to the gospel, what is it? What is it? Well, you know, another term for the gospel is good news. Good news. The original word that we see in scripture can be translated as the gospel or the good news because it truly is good news. There's good news that doesn't start as good news. As often good news starts, it starts as bad news. It starts with a major problem. You see, God tells us that none of us are accidents. We're all here because we were created by our Lord. We were created, in fact, in his image. We were created for intimate fellowship with God. However, there's a problem. Sin entered our world. We're all infected by this disease called sin, this disease, if you will, in which we have broken the law of the Lord and we have missed the mark. That's another term for sin. We've missed the mark and missed God's standard because he is a holy God. He is a holy and perfect God. And because of our sin, every person that walks the face of this earth is now not connected to God intimately, but we're separated from God. We're separated from God. Not because God is mean or ugly, but it's because he's holy and he's pure. And he's perfect and he's righteous. We're separated from God. But here's where the good news comes. God says that because of his love for us, he provides a way for us to be brought back together with him and for us to be forgiven of sin, our sin to be cleansed, and that's that relationship with God to be restored. Here's the thing. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do. We can't be a good enough person. If you sit out there today and say, man, I'd, I'd love for a close relationship with God, and I'd love to know with certainty that I'll go to heaven when I die, and I'd love to live the abundant life. What do I need to do? What do I just do I start today to try to do these 10 things and just do them as well as I can? And, and as God say at the end of my life, that's, that's good? Absolutely not. God says there's nothing we can do to earn it. And so you say, still doesn't sound like good news yet. Well, the good news is the fact that even though we can't earn this, this, uh, this, this great forgiveness, we can't earn this uh, taking away of our sins and this reconciling with God, God, in his incredible love for us, he provided a way for us to be forgiven. He provided a way by sending his one and only son to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin. And through his death on the cross, through his work on the cross, God extends to us a free gift of salvation. And when he extends that free gift of salvation to us, it is a gift that comes with forgiveness 
It is a gift that comes with relationship with him. It is a gift that comes with the, with the abundant life that Jesus promises us. And it is the gift that comes with certainty, certainty of heaven. And so you say, well, how in the world do I get this gift? How in the world do I get this gift? Just as we would receive any gift that's given to us, that's exactly what we do. We simply receive it. It's extended to you today. It's extended to you today as it is extended to you every day. Our response is to simply accept it, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to commit our life to him. That is the gospel. That is the message of the cross. That is the message of the resurrection. So we think about this passage again. There are several ways that we see the women react. But really, when we think about the two reactions, what are the two choices, the two choices that we can choose, two ways that we can choose to react to the resurrection? We see that towards the end of the passage. We see it just kind of pictured at the end of the passage here with the reaction of the 12, the apostles, the followers of Jesus. It says in verse 11, and the women's words seemed to the apostles like idle tales, and they did not believe. They did not believe. So very simply, if you're here today, which you are, and you're hearing this gospel message, there is the first way that you can choose is just to not believe it. There is no choice of neutrality. It's to either choose, choose to disbelieve, or choose to change. There is no choice of neutrality. When we, and when we think about disbelief, disbelief isn't a head, issue, a head issue, it is a heart issue. It's not a head issue, it is a heart issue. You know, yesterday as I was out going to grab some lunch, I was listening to a podcast of, of, uh, of a great Christian apologist, great Christian author, theologian, a guy named Ravi Zacharias, which I've mentioned him before. I really like him, love to listen to his podcast. And he told a really sobering story when he was at a conference and he would speak. It may have been at a college campus, some, some sort of conference. This is what he often does. He'll go for a few days and he'll uh, give these lectures on Christianity and he'll just have open, open forum where people can ask him questions and he'll answer these questions. Uh, oftentimes there's a great mixed bag of who's in the audience, uh, believers in Jesus Christ, some agnostics, some atheists. And so this young man comes up to, to Ravi after, uh, I think, the second night uh, that he was there at this conference. And he comes up uh, saddened and he says, you know what, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And I have two, two friends that are atheists and I brought them with me last night. And they were, they were game. They were all game to come. They were especially ready for the, for the question and answer portion because they had questions ready to go. And then we get to the end of the, end of the session, question and answer period is done. And they haven't asked their questions. So we're walking back. Uh, we're walking back and we're walking together. And I just turned to the one and I said, why didn't you ask your questions? And listen to this. Listen to what this man says to his friend. He says, the arguments of Ravi Zacharias were too persuasive to counter. But he said, don't, don't get your hopes up. I'm still remaining a convinced atheist he said the, the 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 points that were made by that christian apologist ravi the arguments were too persuasive to counter but i'm still remaining a convinced atheist 
You see, it is not a head issue. It is a heart issue. It's a matter of we know intuitively, we know intuitively before we give our lives to Jesus Christ that it isn't a flippant decision. It isn't some little decision, but I think we intuitively know when our heart is beginning to be stirred by the Holy Spirit, we know this is the most important decision that any person can ever make. It's not flippant, and it means that I must give my life. I can't just accept this gift, but I must give my life to this Lord Jesus Christ. And there's something there, it is a heart issue that says, I can't do it. I can't give my life to the Lord Jesus We know deep down in just kind of our quietest of moments, maybe when we're laying in bed at night and we've turned off the TV, we put our phone down, whatever it may be, and we're just laying there before we drift off to sleep. We know that there's hurt and there's hopelessness in our life. We hear the message, but we still, there's something, there's something about it that says, I can't surrender my life to Jesus. I know that pastor at that church says that my life will be far better. I know that pastor at my church says that my sins will be forgiven, that weight of guilt will be gone. I know that pastor at that church says that, that I'll be brought back into to a wonderful relationship with God. I know that pastor at that church says that Jesus promised that I'll have the abundant life. And I know that pastor says that I'll have the certainty, certainty of heaven. But I just can't do it. I'm going to hold on to my life. Just know today, if you sit here and you have not given your life to the Lord Jesus, there may be some mental hurdles, no doubt. There may be some answers in which you need to go searching for. The Bible can stand up to those. The story of Jesus and his resurrection can stand up to those. But always know it is not primarily a head issue. It is a heart issue. So we can respond, number one, with unbelief, or we can respond with number two, with change. With change. It says in verse 12, but Peter, of course it's Peter, Peter, he arose, he arose, he stood up and he ran to the tomb. He put aside any care, any concern about looking foolish. He'd probably crossed that bridge a number of times of looking foolish, so he didn't care. He didn't care if I look like a fool because I run with such great expectation that Jesus is risen and then I get there and I realize they found the wrong tomb or something like that. He put all of that aside. He did not care. And he unashamedly ran to the tomb. He responded with change. The same change that we see again 50 days minus a few later. We see in his life that he had incredible change. And he is preaching before a hostile crowd. And he is preaching with courage. He is saying this one, this Lord Jesus Christ whom you crucified. He was your Messiah. Give your lives to him. What change in his life? You see, change requires action. He got up, he arose, and he ran. He didn't care about looking foolish. It requires action. It requires action. So not only do we see that the tomb requires action, but we see that the empty tomb causes wonder. The end of verse 12, I love how it says it here, but he saw the linen claws lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling. With wonder. We were beings, we were human beings created by our creator for not only passion in our life, but we were created for wonder. We were created to marvel at things. 
you know, we never outgrow that stage in our life. You remember it as a kid when you kind of sit under your blanket with a flashlight and you're reading that incredible book or that incredible magazine or story and it's just you're filled with awe and wonder. That is something that we don't grow out of. We're in search of awe and wonder in our lives. New Age author I found on a New Age website, a New Age author of this website says she was scuba diving and we may find humor in this but man it's sad i can't help but my heart to be broken for this she was scuba diving and she said she came face to face with a turtle and she said in that moment we her and the turtle were connected through an invisible essence like all creatures and humans are connected in a way that we often don't understand she, this lady said, I sensed in this turtle her ancient wisdom and timeless soul, and she was transfixed. Now, we might chuckle at that. Some of us might take it very seriously, and I hope you do, but maybe not for the reason you might think. I hope we take that seriously because it, it, it belies in that story just a need for human beings for awe and wonder in their life, but we will only truly find awe and wonder in the one place in which God has has, has created us to find awe and wonder, and that is in himself. That is in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no awe and wonder, like the awe and wonder that comes from a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing that he absolutely makes good on his promise that he made to us in John chapter 15. He says, if you invited me in John chapter 10, he, he tells us that, that he will bring us the abundant life. You will have life and you will have it abundantly we are filled with awe and wonder you see even for us again that have given our lives to the lord jesus christ do we respond with passion do we respond with the sort of loose lips that we see here from these from these ladies that could not help but tell him everywhere they went they said i've got to tell i've got to tell about the lord jesus christ and for those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, may I implore you to respond to him with change. Will you choose to believe? Will you choose to believe in this gospel message that Jesus Christ came to die in your place to forgive you of sin, to give you a hope and a certainty of heaven, to bring you abundant life? Will you choose to disbelieve or will you choose to believe, and to change. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray today that those who sit with us here in this place that do not know your Son as their Savior, they've never been forgiven of, of sin, their life has not changed, they've never experienced the wonder of knowing you personally, they've never known the wonder of living that abundant life. Lord, may they today commit their life to the Lord Jesus. May this be the day, this wonderful Easter Sunday, may this be the day where they commit their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.